my advice to all young people is be passionate, be curious, so you learn about a lot, and then be passionate about something. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports. And we do that every week, hopefully every week, with Joe Fabrito. Joe, what's going on? We're entering the third quarter of 2020, coming out of half. How did that happen? How did that happen? Um, when it's, it's weird psychologically when the calendar page uh, or digital page turns from June to July, it does feel like things kind of intensify. School's not that far away. Uh, the NFL season's not that far away, which of course is the big dog in the, in the biz. Um, and it just feels like after July 4th weekend, um, we have to start changing our mindsets a little bit. Now, this summer, of course, it's a little bit different because we've, uh, we've already changed our mindsets. Which none of us are taking right. vacations or doing anything we would normally do in the summertime. Anyway, um, I want to jump right into this discussion because it's a topic, it's another media topic, or, you know, for my favorite topic and probably yours. And we're going to be doing it with a, uh, an industry veteran who we know a little bit and has just a wealth of experience in the business and a wealth of insights to share with everybody. Uh, we're really lucky to have them. Um, and it's a category, Joe, that you know as much about as almost anybody that, I'm, that I work with in the business in that you have your own version of news and information curation through your weekly newsletter. You've had the privilege of working with a lot of the news outlets in the business. And what we've learned for, for those of us who have been around for a while, the growth of sports business coverage has been kind of spectacular. Uh, going back to the 90s when we both were in the business and witnessed the launch of Sports Business Journal. Sports and Inc. Remember, do you remember Sports Inc? That was the first one. Was that, that was different than SBJ? Sports yeah, Inc.? Sports I do Inc. remember the name. That was the okay. first one. It was actually a hard magazine, a long time Wait, ago. Wait, and then well, I kind of remember this, and I know our guest is going to remember this. I remember reading the sports section of USA Today. Yeah. When that guy Rudy Rudy Martsky, Rudy Martsky, did the TV column, and everybody in the sports business, the leagues and teams, and ESPN and stuff like that, read that the first thing every morning. That was the closest bought, thing we. Well, even crazier was people bought USA Today, which is right. right. I remember on the commuter train from Connecticut. Yeah, every all the a lot of people, especially those people in the media, entertainment, or let's say advertising, marketing business, the first thing they would go to is the sports section. They go to Rudy. Um, anyway, and then we saw this incredible evolution over the last 20 years, and we now have all kinds of different properties covering the beat, as they say, of sports because it's so big and vast and expansive and interesting. It's warranted coverage like we might not have imagined when our careers were starting back in the day. And recently, there was a big announcement in the business. Joe, why don't you just remind everybody what that announcement was? Sure. So uh, Penske Media decided to create a platform. Uh, the platform is called Sportico. Uh, my friend Scott Soshnick brought some of his friends with him from Bloomberg, uh, exited Bloomberg, and, and they launched. So we're doing this at the beginning of July, right before the, the, end, of the, uh, the, the end of June. Um, it is a digital-only platform right now. Um, brought in some pretty interesting writers to cover a particular niche, which we're going to talk about, uh, and kind of figure out where they're going to fit in the space, obviously launching in a very challenging time for some, but uh, certainly a newsworthy time with every sport and creation almost coming back. So our guest today is Dick Glover. Hey, Dick, welcome. Thank you. It's, it's a real- By uh, Rudy Marsky right. at ESPN, we were all angry because it seemed like Dick Ebersol at NBC had Rudy in his back pocket. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we, we'd get slammed for everything we do and Dick would get praised for everything he did. That, that's funny. I, I was too young and naive at the time. I was working at the NFL and I, I didn't think about stuff like that at that my, my, my young age. But you're probably absolutely right. Uh, but anyway, uh, Joe, Joe, we, let's just. Yeah, go Tom, ahead. just before we leave that point, yeah. there was a time my friend Vince Wildeco always points out that sure. there was like a three year period when Vince was working at Fox where it was like the president of the United States and Vince Wildeco were the people who were most quoted in USA Today, thanks to me. <laughs> <laughs> Funny how that works. Yeah, right. okay. and, and it was, and I'm sorry we digressed down memory lane here, 
For us at ESPN, it was always very, very frustrating because ESPN took a reactive, not proactive approach to, to PR. And so Vince, who was one of the best in the business and, yep. and, and was unbelievable, it's all over it. And, you know, Rosa Gaddy, who you probably know, mm -hmm, Joe, sure. Rosa, who was phenomenal, phenomenal executive, but it was always containment. And so those of us who were schlogging on the lines and trying to get a little coverage for what we were doing or whatever, would get frustrated because, you know, Vince would be all over, not just Rudy, but the New York Post and yep. everywhere. Richard Sandemir. And, you know, yep. Bill Mushnick, who hated us with a passion. Uh, and and uh, it was, yeah, no, Vince was a legend. All right, so Dick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot as we get into this conversation by saying, I want you to write a book and I want it to be entitled something like True Confessions from a Lifetime in the Sports and Media Business. Because you've had an incredible run at really interesting places ranging from WWE to ESPN to NASCAR, et cetera. Um, and it's I've had the privilege. And funnier, I forgot, funnier die too. Um, and Mandalay. So that's a lot, that's a lot of territory. So since we don't want to spend the entire time we have together today talking about your rich, colorful history in the business, <laughs> give, give everybody kind of like the Cliff's Notes version and just like, tell us the good stuff. Yeah, no, the Cliff Notes is I'm clearly old uh, <laughs> and, and that, that, uh, that's really the defining characteristic. Um, the, uh, and I've been really lucky to, to find myself in the right place at the right time and, and, and have uh, been at some great places uh, starting at the WWE in, in, you know, really its first gigantic heyday. Uh, and that was great. Went over to ESPN uh, and was there pretty much throughout the entire 90s. Again, a, a period of great growth and-, and Well, and, and, the, and the advent of digital as a whole new yeah, line absolutely. of business. Yeah, that that know, was I mean, kind of important. It, it, it was, as, as yeah. I like to tell people, you know, I started ESPN, it was, one network and international syndication, right. you know, and then when I left, you know, everybody's talking about the Ocho and, uh, <laughs> you know, right. networks everywhere and websites and magazines and, 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 and literally being able to be a part of, part of that. It's just, and Dick, uh, Born, Bornstein was in charge at the time. Steve Bornstein had just become president okay. and he hired me. One wow. Of, one of his, All right. So before you leave those two companies, just quickly, what are your what are your um, biggest takeaways from having worked for Vince McMahon and Steve Bornstein, two of the legends of the business? Yeah, and and knock on wood, I'm I'm also really really lucky. I'm still good friends with both. Um, mm -hmm. That Vince was absolutely the most creative and also most controlling executive I've ever seen, and 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 also by far the most passionate. And, and that was one of the things I learned from him is, is, you know, passion is just so critical to what you do. And, and, and we're talking about, you know, for, for people, I know this is, we're getting to the end of the podcast instead of the beginning, but my advice to all young people is be passionate, be curious so you learn about a lot and then be passionate about something and follow your passions. And even if you have to work as a bartender while you're, you know, writing and nobody's publishing it because you're passionate, that's what to do. That's more important than working in a law firm when you hate the law. Um, <laughs> right. the, uh, and, and so Vince, you know, his idea of a great weekend was to sit by his pool and do business. Um, that, that, and, and 24 seven and, right. and, you know, and never understood when someone would say, uh, wait, I'm going to go to the little league game with my kid. He was like, that was foreign. <laughs> no, no, no. Come on. We're going to be booking by the pool. What are you talking about? This is great. Oh, anyway, so that Vince, yeah. Steve, uh, just the, the consummate executive who, I, it may have been my wife who came up with the expression, he doesn't make you feel good, but he makes you be good. He challenged us every way, shape, and form to be the best we could be. 
and and you would go through walls for him because you knew that's what it was. And again, it wasn't easy, and sometimes he didn't feel great. Um, and it was really in that period of time, we had a phenomenal team that was mm -hmm. together, and, and Steve just led it in a way that that's why all of us, I think, were, were lucky enough to go on to success beyond. How did, how did he get you guys, and I don't know where your head was at in the trend, because I was at the NFL in the mid-90s when, as I like to say, uh, I joined the NFL and there was no internet, then it was kind of a big deal when I left. Uh, and you kind of <laughs> had the same thing at ESPN yeah, that I did. Yeah. How did he get everybody, or who, was he kind of the, uh, the philosophical and moral, not moral, philosophical and kind of visionary leader about transitioning ESPN into this digital world? Because it was really mysterious to a lot of older executives. Yes, he definitely was. And I'll tell two stories that I think are very relevant even to today. One was when we first started to look at it, and this was before the internet. The internet was only known by Mark Andresian and 12 people. Right. And, and Netscape, yeah. Um, but there was Prodigy and CompuServe mm -hmm. and AOL had just uh, uh, just gone public. And so we said, wait, we called it. I'll never forget. We called it Computer Delivered Information. I said, we have wow. to play in the Computer Delivered Information. So I was meeting with everybody under the sun and this, that, and the other, including AOL, who we liked the best, Steve Case. That's how small it was. Steve right. Case and I would sit together at cable trade shows and nobody knew who Steve was. And, and so I said, you know, uh, Steve to Bornstein, yeah, we need to look at this, this, that, and the other. And Steve's email address at that time, and I, he acted like he didn't know anything about it. His email address was steveb at aol.com. Because he was the first Steve B to ever have an email. Steve C was Steve Cases. So all of a sudden, Steve, who knew everything about it, but pushed me to go yeah. find out, go learn, and then come back to him. And it wasn't till the end that he revealed, oh, guess what? Yeah, I actually do know a little about this. Then, fast forward, we launch ESPN.com. Um, and we have every year all of the programming executive, all the program people for the company have a retreat for two or three days. We go over everything in the company that's going on, everything, everybody does presentations, whatever. The end of it, there's a Q&A and somebody says to Steve, my God, Steve, we've heard we're launching ESPN2 and we're doing this and we got all that. Wrap it up by, what's like the one or the two things that are really the future of the company? And without pause, he says, the internet. And everybody kind of goes, well, wait, we just saw some presentation from Glover. We don't even know what the hell this thing is. And he's going, it's the that's how he focused everybody and got from that day on, the focus was different than it had been from the day before. And that's how he managed. Dick, how did you, I mean, I don't right. want to spend too much more time on, on, the, on this past history, although it's fascinating to me, maybe not everybody else, but how did you find the Starwave guys, Mike Slade right. and so, Tom Phillips so and stuff like that? Part. And again, it gets back so we can focus it that might be actually useful for some of the people that are listening <laughs> to the idea of being curious and learning. That, that's always, I, I've always been that way. This has been my nature. And so, as I say, we knew that computer-delivered information was something we wanted to do. So I, you know, just literally hopped on a plane, went out to Seattle. I'm not sure how I got to know somebody at Microsoft and went and hung around there for a little bit. And then they, uh, I don't know if they introduced me or how I got introduced to Paul Allen, who had mm -hmm. then had started StarWave. And so then got to meet the Starwave guys. And at the same time, I had met some people down in Palo Alto uh, and, and elsewhere in Silicon Valley. We're just trying to absorb information, including a meeting with uh, Jim Clark and Mark Andreessen wow. when they started what was Netscape. Um, but it was Silicon Graphics, was Jim Clark's company, and had these big computer things. And, that was the first I ever saw the demonstration of the internet 
what it looked like, what it worked. And it was to this day, the most unbelievable thing I had ever seen. It was incredible. And the only question I said, what you created this on these $10,000 Silicon graphic computer machines. And they said, don't worry. I'm telling you every computer, that's not going to be the issue mm -hmm. at all. Right. And, and so that's how I found Starwave and, and, and others. And then the other lesson, and it's a lesson for people, when we were looking at what to do. We were pretty smart about what we didn't know. And at that point in time, ESVM was certainly not a technology company by any way, shape or form, had no idea. And Starwave had phenomenal technology and product people for that day and age. And we said, wow, we know what we don't know. Now, those guys did think they knew more about sports than we knew about sports. So they were less uh, uh, of the knowing what we don't know sort. But they also knew they had nowhere near the reach. They would never be able to. They had created a prototype sports service, if you will. And they knew they would never be able to really get it out to market. And so that the partnership would work for them. And we made the decision, you know, I, I used to say, we looked at them and we saw us. We said, these people are compatible with us. They have the same vision. They have the same focus and drive. And so we were willing to partner and, and did very successfully. Mm -hmm. And when Disney bought ESPN, they brought together everybody working in the internet on the different brands across ABC and Disney and, and us. And I'll never forget, very, very senior Disney executive looked at me and said, yeah, we could never do what you do. And I said, oh, well, that's a great thing to hear from your new bosses. I said, what do you mean? He said, we don't partner well. And he said, you guys do. And that's, we need to learn because that's why you've been successful in this space. You chose a good partner and you ran a good partnership. And I think that that's, again, something for people that, you know, know what you don't know and then be a good partner when you're in partnerships. It's not about who can take the most off the table. It's about, okay, how can we really sort of build something together if you're trying to build something? Now it's different if you're selling a rights package or whatever. And that's why I used to always laugh. You guys at the NFL, people at baseball, Oh yeah, we're going to partner with ESPN. Yeah, that's a crock of BS. You're not partnering with us. You're cashing our checks and providing a great product to us. And that's right. great. But don't tell me you're partnering with me. And, and, and by the way, building your own sites that effectively will, uh, with a lot of overlapping right. content, right. competing for eyeballs, as they used to say. Right. I mean, right. Someone called out the guy, I, I, I won't mention names, but I was at a one of the industry conferences where the guy from Fox kind of called out the guy from the NFL. I had left the NFL by, the, by that time. And basically he's yapping on and on about how much, how great NFL.com is. And the guy from Fox, and they had just renewed their deal, I think, for like right. crazy money. And, he, and I'll never forget, he, he kind of interrupted the NFL guy and he leans into the microphone and goes, let me get this straight. We just paid you guys like a billion dollars and now you're building a business that's going to compete directly with mine on the internet. Is that right? Is that accurate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I remember that thinking that was a you know, kind of a, a really good thing to say publicly because it got me thinking. It's like, I mean, it, it's a concept we talk about even in my digital media class. It's like, yeah, everybody's fighting for attention in the attention economy and everybody. And if you publish box scores or schedules, it's the same thing that everybody else is publishing. There's no differentiation in that area of the business. So it's anyway, it's really fascinating. So now that for the book that you're going to write, we've gotten through yeah. chapters one and two. Uh, just take us through quickly the, 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 the path. Um, but I, we do want to spend some time on Sportico. So just take us quickly through the, the journey beyond after ESPN. And especially yeah. well, now that you get to leave Connecticut after all those, those years. Yeah, remember. well, I got That's to right. leave Connecticut because I mentioned Steve uh, Bornstein and, and what a, still to this day, the best boss I ever had. Um, and so Steve's reward for building uh, ESPN into the giant it had become was to become the head of the new Disney internet group that Disney focused 
on consolidating all of the internet properties across all of the Walt Disney Company into one place. It's going to be spun off with its own stock. And, and, and again, that's when the internet was hotter, unlike the mid-90s when nobody knew what it was. By 2000, it was the hottest thing going. And, and you know, that's the dot-com boom and mm -hmm. everybody's going public for billions of dollars of valuation with no revenue. Um, and so and AOL, AOL bought Time Warner. <laughs> AOL bought Time Warner. So the Disney vision is to consolidate all their assets, which were obviously quite massive and incredible and doing some great, great stuff on the internet into one company, the Disney Internet Group, and then ultimately spin that off in some way as its own stock and this that, and the other. And, and also sort of positioned as, as uh, you know, one of the key elements of the company. And so they promoted Steve to run it all out here. And so Steve asked me to join him being in charge of all of the non-Disney branded products. So now we've consolidated ABC News, ABC.com, Movies.com, Mr. Showbiz, a whole bunch of other assets that weren't Disney brands. And I'm allegedly going to come out here and run those to great success. Um, the uh, only problem was it was a really, truly flawed strategy that the idea that you're going to consolidate. So ESPN.com is now going to be run out of Glendale, California. Makes no sense whatsoever, obviously. And it's going to share and do things with Disney.com that's worried about Disneyland Paris tickets. It's just a flawed strategy. And the overarching part of it was and this is the time of AOL and Yahoo were at their glory, is going to be a portal to compete with Yahoo and AOL that's going to focus primarily on sports, entertainment, and recreation called go.com. Mm -hmm. And oh, no. right. that's it. And so Steve and I and others get out here and very, very quickly say, this is a flawed strategy. And the people that, that in order to power this thing, Disney bought Infoseek, which at the time was the number two search engine behind Yahoo. Wow. Google had literally just launched. And the guys who ran Infoseek were talking and saying, hey, you guys got the wrong strategy. It's not about portals. That's yesterday. It's about search and contextual search, being able to link advertising to search and some, some unnamed Disney executives replied, there will never be any advertising revenue in search. <laughs> it's all about <laughs> Wow, wow. Okay. So, well, that was a trillion dollar mistake. <laughs> yep. And, and yeah. by the way, uh, I, I do need to be careful. Uh, I'm friends with that Disney executive. And to this day, that Disney executive claims it was not him, but McKenzie, who we had hired to oh my God. consult and work with this, and we paid a lot of money. It was McKenzie that was the architect of that strategy and made that comment at right. that meeting. So whatever the reason, it was a colossal failure, um, much to no one's surprise in retrospect. Yeah. And, and so uh, Steve went off, hold on one second, my computer just, uh, hold on one second. There you are, we're back. Uh, so Steve went off to run all media, everything for the NFL, and I went off to do the same thing at NASCAR. Um, and at NASCAR, one of the great experiences I was able to have was I was the executive, one of the executive producers on Talladega Nights, the movie. Oh, wow. And from that experience, got to know very well uh, what I refer to as Team Farrell, which was Will Farrell, his partner, Adam McKay, his manager, uh, Jimmy Miller, his producer, Judd Apatow, got to know those guys pretty well. So you flash forward a few years later, 
Sequoia Capital gives them some money to launch Funny or Die, and they are able to convince me that I should come run it for and with them. And so I had never been part of a startup or, you know, never really had that uh, inkling in me. I, I was very happy in the corporate world. I was always a good corporate citizen, enjoyed it and all of that. But they were able to convince me that it was worth taking a flyer and doing it. And uh, once again, in, in the world of brilliant timing, I took the job the day that the Fed retroactively said was the start of the recession of 2008. <laughs> and then in October 2008, you'll recall, yeah. uh, the world ended. Um, so it was a hell of a time to be running a startup. <laughs> right. And it was an it was a classic advertising based play, right? Uh, uh, yeah, it was yeah. Pure. And, and so the ad market just tanked, right. right. Yeah. And and it was. But again, here's something that hopefully can be a useful lesson for for people earlier in their careers than I am. It actually turned out to be one of the great experiences of all time because I was summoned as all Sequoia CEOs were to a mandatory urgent meeting in Silicon Valley of all, as I say, the portfolio CEOs to hear from a leading economist from Stanford, a uh, former Sequoia partner who's been very successful on a bunch of boards and a current Sequoia partner to talk about the mess we found ourselves in. And they began the presentation with a slide that was a tombstone. And the tombstone read on it, end in peace, rest in peace, good times. And they then went on to say, we are totally screwed that this economy, if the government does a really good job and is really smart, it'll only be five years of a recovery. If they screw it up, this is going to look like post-war Japan with outrageous inflation. This And then they went on to say, okay, so now what can you do as a manager of a company in this environment? And they said, one, one, you have, you will never see another dime. So you have to have a realistic and clear path to profitability. And you can't kid yourself now because you're no. two. You must avoid the spiral of death. And the spiral of death, they had a graphic of it, is the company. And they said there are two characteristics of the spiral of death. Once you are in the spiral of death, you can never get out. And you don't know when you're in the spiral of death. So, but what the spiral of death is, is companies that hit a tough time. And again, totally relevant to today. And they sort of cut a little bit and things are still tough. They cut a little more. They cut a little more. They're toast. They said the way to avoid the spiral of death is to get under it, which is to cut to the absolute bare essentials of what you need. And then you'll get, you'll weather the storm underneath it. You won't, you'll be focused. You'll be doing only what you are good at. And you have a chance to weather the storm and come out the other end. And they told the story of a company that you probably remember, Macromedia, which ultimately I think became Adobe, that in 2000, when the internet bubble burst, went from 300 employees, the board told the CEO he probably should cut back about 50%, probably cut back to 150. He looked at it, he said, nope. They cut to literally something like 50 employees from 300. Three years later, sold the company for four or $500 million, it all worked. So we went back at Funny or Die, looked at what we were good at, what we weren't good at. And we were doing a bunch of other stuff. It wasn't just comedy. We were doing Eat, Drink, or Die and the culinary thing. We thought it was the model that worked as opposed to the content that worked. Mm -hmm. So we did that. We had a deal with Tony Hawk on Shred or Die. We had, God, I'm trying to remember. Why am I suddenly blanking? A bunch of others. We said, wait, what we're actually good at and where we have some 
competitive advantage is in the comedy space. And so let's get rid of all this other stuff. And we cut literally 60% of the cost out of the company, but yet we're actually investing more money into comedy at that point in time. And literally the graphs were up and to the right from that day forward. Wow. And so again, out of, and that was a horrible day. I was literally throwing up at that meeting at Sequoia. It was so unnerving. And, and personally for my life, I said, oh my God, I've, I took a 70% salary cut for a piece of equity and, a, you know, the whole entrepreneurial thing. And I'm screwed. My family's screwed. But in point of fact, that was a great day. And you can still see that presentation. If you Google rest in peace, good times, Sequoia Capital. Wow. You'll see the. Oh, I definitely will check that out. That's fascinating to me. And so anyway, Nick, one quick, one quick question on on that. As you looked at what you had to do, just in terms of cutting expenses and also your profile in terms of revenue opportunity, did you guys have a sense yet that the Facebook and Google juggernauts in terms of vacuuming up ad dollars was going to be as big and damaging uh, as it became? Yes and no. Because the other part of Funny or Die that was unique, it was a model that would get me flunked out of Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School, Columbia, anywhere, where they'd throw me out instantly, which was we had 20 employees in three offices. We had an office in Silicon Valley, an office in Hollywood, and an office in New York. And the reason was the great best engineers and tech and all that, they were world-class athletes were in Silicon Valley. So our seven or eight guys, where they were. The best comedy creators in the world at that time were in Hollywood. So that's where the creative team was. And the money was in New York in ad sales. So that's where sales were. And that proved to work really, really well, actually. And, and so part of it was we were way ahead on social media. And, and remember when we launched Facebook, had, I, I think it just launched, Twitter didn't even exist yet. It was all about YouTube and that was it. And so my, actually he was my COO, but he was really the head of product was his main thing. And so his kid played lacrosse with one of the founders of Twitter and his daughter went to school with, you know, employee six at Facebook. So we were way ahead on social media as a tool for marketing and disseminating content. So the answer is yes, we were aware of social media. No, we did not see the ultimate impact it would have on the model of advertiser-supported digital publishing. Right. Um, I wish I could tell you I saw that. Yeah, yeah, no, well, that, you, you and 100% of everybody else in, yeah. <laughs> in non-Facebook yeah. and Google digital publishing at the time, that's it's a crazy yeah. thought. I yeah. mean, it was only 12 years ago and it, it just seemed to happen um, just so fast when you look back yeah. on it. Uh, in, yeah. the, in the historical yeah. context. I, mean, I even remember there's a, a legendary Silicon Valley angel investor, a guy by the name of Ron Conway. And Ron had a very small piece of Funny or Die. Much more significantly for his future, he had a small piece of Facebook, Twitter, and a bunch of other of the social media, YouTubes, whatever. So anyway, I was having breakfast with him when Twitter had turned down $500 million from, was it Amazon or Facebook? I can't remember who it was. Maybe not, I don't remember, but they had, it was Microsoft, that's who it was. Microsoft offered $500 million and Twitter turned it down. And Ron was ecstatic that they turned it down. I said, Ron, you've got to explain to me, because I, I, I got to admit, I would have cashed that check so fast. They don't have any revenue. They're not, they have no revenue. He says, oh, no, no, they'll get, don't worry about it. They'll have plenty of revenue. I said, why advertising on social? I, I, yeah, I get it, but it's gonna be worth turning down 500 million? He said, trust me on it. You know, obviously Ron was a hell of a lot smarter than I was. Yeah, that's just crazy to think about. So Dick, we wanna talk about Sportico, but just quickly finish yeah. the, uh, the, the, um, uh, the so, resume okay, part. So, yeah. Real quick, so Funny and I, we had a sale for the company uh, and, and actually it was papered and, and done. 
it fell apart at the last minute for things having nothing to do with actually Funny or Die, but had to do with some other thing. And so when that happened and it was clear that, you know, I wasn't going to get rich or famous, I would just be running what was still a great company and great fun and people that I loved dearly. And I had an opportunity to join up with Peter Goober, the owner of the Warriors and Dodgers and LAFC, and another producer friend of mine, a fellow by the name of Mike Toland, to do a sports media company. It was really more or less a production company. Um, I just said, hey, here's a great opportunity to again do something different from the start, whatever. And uh, our biggest claim to fame at Mandalay was uh, we're the producers of The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary that just aired, the 10-part series, mm -hmm. but did a bunch of other things, a bunch of movies, other stuff. And that was great, and, and um, I enjoyed it. But it was literally, you know, four people. It, 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 um, and, and it was really very, very much... As I say, the Bank Bonin was a production company. There's more to it. I don't need that to go into it, but but it was, and and so when the the opportunity with Sportico came along, I made a decision to do that, and 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 that, you know we can talk about that for a minute. I'll anticipate your question and right. <laughs> that a lot, right. which is you mentioned Sports Business Journal, 28 years or whatever it is that that it's been around has done and continues to do a great job um, uh, in the space that uh, a bunch of, of really bright, energetic young people have carved out literally some blogs that have become businesses in the space with a little different approach in right. terms of what they cover. And, and so over the last several years, they've perked up. And so there's always been a thought among some people, primarily Scott Soschnick, who you mentioned, who Joe knows, who is the, Scott's the preeminent reporter in the space. He's been at Bloomberg for 20, over 25 years. And, and Scott saw that there was an opportunity, I've referred to it as a white space, um, where really good, solid, qualitative daily coverage of sports business, like what the Wall Street Journal does, what Bloomberg does, what Wall Street, what, uh, uh, Wall Street Journal does on a daily basis and some real thought leadership, not just a conference that 500 people go in a ballroom, but real thought leadership kinds of things, that there was an opportunity that that wasn't happening in the space. And others, you know, Jeffrey Pollack, who was one of the original founders of, of uh, Sports Business Journal, he clearly saw that the same kind of opportunity right. and he was talking to some people. And those people are friends of mine and they asked me about it. And, and I told them that I thought building what is in essence at its heart, a digital publishing platform in this day and age, you just can't do it from scratch. You, you just, you can't build the infrastructure, everything you need to do to then have to go out and fight against in the ad space world, you've got, you know, the big boys taking all the money out in the subscription world between SBJ, the athletic, you know, ESPN plus, whatever, you know, it's just too long a road to hoe. So that was my advice to them. Flash forward, uh, I, in the NASCAR days, had become friends with uh, Greg Penske, um, who uh, owns a bunch of car dealerships, but has been very active with the Penske family, the NASCAR team, the IndyCar mm -hmm. team, and all that. But I'd never met Jay, his brother. Never met him. And uh, a friend of mine, we were talking and, and, and they said, oh yeah, you know, Greg, you don't know Jay. Oh God, you would love Jay. You, you, I'm going to introduce you guys. You guys would just love each other. Great, whatever. Cost of breakfast, I'll do it. So anyway, I, I go and met Jay. I don't know, this might've been a year ago. Um, 
And we absolutely did. We hit it off. And in the course of talking, Jay says, you know, I've really been looking at it. My company, Penske Media, has got Variety, Deadline, Rolling Stone, Rob Report, Women's Wear Daily. She made, I've got fashion, music, art, lifestyle, all that. I don't have sports and I should have sports. It's, it's, it's empty, but I've never met the right people with the exact right idea. Is that a, I said, wow, you know, that's interesting, Jay, because I think there's a real opportunity, but there's no infrastructure to be able to pull it off. And that started the conversation. And so then ultimately, we said, okay, here's an opportunity to go do it. Let's, let's have a go at it. And so uh, I formally hooked up with Jay in February. Um, obviously, a month later, uh, I got kicked out of the office. The, clearly, the, the key to the whole thing, the absolute key, was two things. One, the Penske infrastructure, which is phenomenal. Jay and his team, this company is really, really good. Mm -hmm. But then second, Scott, Scott Soschnick, and both his focus, his skill set, and his relationships. And so Scott came on board literally after the offices have closed. So here it is. We had a two-man team, and we don't even have an office now anymore to try and build this thing. And we have. <laughs> wow. Well, and then you've added a bunch of other people, obviously, in the last well, month. Well, so. obviously. Right. Yeah. Well, congratulations. It's, that's great. Um, Joe, I'm sure you have a question. I just wanted to quickly ask about, um, it's interesting for you coming in as a former senior level executive from the property side and the media side, but you're, I assume from an editorial standpoint, you're letting Scott kind of lead the show because of his knowledge and expertise. Do you find yourself wanting to be kind of an executive editor at, at, on certain days? Because I think we all have feelings about stories we read, like, oh my God, that should be investigated, or this is a big thing that no one's talking about. I mean, because you, you probably have a lot of insights because of your vast experience that are very helpful in terms of creative uh, creativity and ideation for stories and things like that. Yeah, uh, the answer is no, I actually have not had that, that desire at all. And because there's one through line of my whole career that you'll notice, which is I've managed creative people while not being a creative person. Mm -hmm. I've never written a story. I've never edited a story. Um, I've barely produced PowerPoints. Um, but I, I have learned from a lot of people and other things how to enable creative people to be creative, whether those people are programming people, whether those people are athletes, whether those people are, are writers, comedians, whatever it, it might be. And so the trick for me always is to be lucky enough to surround myself with good people. And then all I have to do is enable them. Um, and so I once again found myself in that incredibly fortuitous position of I've got Scott as my partner. And, and um, I'm like every day really working hard to make sure I stay out of his way and make sure he has what he needs and obviously his team uh, needs to be able to do, do their jobs. Now, that's not to say that I won't give my opinion as, as you know, a consumer, if you will. And, you know, for instance, today we have a story and, and I'm not involved in the rundown. So I see it when I get the newsletter the same time you see it when you get the newsletter, if you will. And we have a just terrific story today that this, this uh, young woman reporter, uh, Scott, Emily Karen. on that uh, the contracts with the number of the colleges with the media companies 
list feminine hygiene products as a banned category. Now, understand firearms, for instance, are not banned, um, but feminine hygiene products are, and along with tobacco and gambling and other things that you, you know, uh, sex and uh, male enhancement things. And it's just a, a great story that she has done. Uh, it's terrific. I, I encourage everybody to go go read it. it it's fascinating, just fascinating, uh, and and incredibly well researched, well presented. So when I saw this, I immediately said, you know, wow, Scott, this is fantastic. You know, have have you know we got the PR guys working with. Um, for instance, Serena Williams was, I think, quoted in the story, and I think somebody, you know, these people that, to, the world should see this. You know, I don't want this to be a far, a tree that falls in the forest, whatever. So then it is, so what can I do to help to make sure, because we just launched, obviously, you know, we're not as well known as uh, a bunch of other people, and it's not like if Scott had put this on the Bloomberg wire. It will be soon, but it isn't today. And so um, that's how I looked at, it. okay, what can I do to help Scott and Emily get, get this story, the, the uh, attention that it, it really truly deserves? I, I have just a thought. Joe, do you, did you have something? I couldn't tell. I just, um, and, I, and yeah. I know we're gonna get short of time. I mean, my, my yeah. interest is where it goes from here. Like, what is the path in a, in a world where we're not going to have the quote, traditional conferences, at least for the rest of 2021? And, you know, you, Dick, you've talked numerous times about, you know, how does the thing basically make money and how does it grow? And that would be my question before we get to our last ones. Okay, let me just tack on the second question, then you can finish. We'll finish up with you kind of answering both. Um, and it relates to Joe's question. It seems like there's a real balancing act that needs to be, um, to be struck to maintain, when you're doing B2B media, like in a vertical exports, you clearly have to maintain good relationships with the power brokers. So leagues, commissioners, heads of media companies, like people like you in your old jobs. But I think there's an increasingly, an increasing kind of pressure on media companies that are doing B2B media to speak truth to power, particularly in this era that we're living in right now. So none of us want BS stories. I mean, I know Joe and I talk about this all the time, and there's a lot of BS stories out there. Nobody's yeah. calling BS when it needs, well, it happens sometimes, but it usually happens in social, more in isolation, not necessarily as part of the media enterprise. How do you strike that? How are you feeling like, if, if, assuming that's a correct insight, how, does, how do you strike that balance? Yeah, and, and I'm not sure it's a balance um, that, it is basically you're truthful, you're transparent, you're honest, you're diligent, you're thoughtful, you know, all of those things. And that's why Scott and the team he's put together are people who are respected because they are all those things. And, and that's why people want to talk to them because they know they're not going to do a hatchet job or something. Mm -hmm. They're not going to go off with something which is not fully baked and fully researched and accurate. And, and it, I found that people totally respect that, 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 you know, if somebody has made a mistake or, or has had a, made a tough decision, they made it one way, not another, they respect it if you present it accurately, fairly, and thoroughly. And, and you engage with them in the process. And that, that um, that's where, and again, we think one of the things that differentiates us from everybody else in the space is we have a level of access to, the, the level of personal access to the true top of the pyramid in the industry and a level of trust with them that, guess what? I know that anybody who wants to can get through the PR machine and get an interview with Adam Silver if it's about something appropriate. You know, of course, he'll talk to people who are, but I also know that Scott and I can have a conversation 
with Adam that is different than other people. So just use that as one example. Mm -hmm. And and that comes from a place of trust, not from a place of, oh, somebody's just out trying to use me for some purpose or whatever. Uh, so that's that. And then how does that tie back to the business? Because I think it's actually very interrelated that we look ultimately to have a business that does have multiple revenue streams, that is not dependent just on advertising, is not dependent just on some form of ticketing or commerce or something, is not dependent on just some form of subscription or whatever. And, and so what we plan to do is to build this trust and respect with an audience and, and that audience starts at the top of the pyramid with, you know, the commissioners, the bankers, the owners, the C-level executives and all of that. But then it filters down to anybody who's working in the space and in the industry. And ultimately it will filter down if we're doing a good job of, of uh, providing insightful, really good stuff to the top of the pyramid. I guarantee you the hardcore sports fan is now in this day and age going to be interested in reading it. And that's how it breaks out of being just a niche product, so to speak, that we do look not now that we've had to change because of, of uh, the pandemic and all to do really meaningful thought leadership kinds of live media, we'll call it, not even events that, you know, uh, I think Joe, for sure, Tom, I, I don't know if you're familiar with what Scott did at Bloomberg with his power lunches. Yes. That kind of thing where you get together, a, you know, a couple dozen of the really movers and shakers of industry to really talk and to really listen and to really share. And then out of that, pull out you know, and all of that potentially off the record, whatever, but then to pull out for people who are not part of the very small audience, some amount of material that everybody agrees is shareable, if you will, that is made available to a larger membership group, if you will. That kind of access, that kind of thought leadership, I think can provide for, if you will, a membership sort of model down the road. Now, what we're not going to do, I think people are pretty much uh, had, had their fill of webinars and Zoom meetings, uh, whatever for now. So we'll defer that for a while. I'm not going to try and, you know, shoehorn some kind of thing into uh, a Zoom that doesn't, you know, really provide the kind of value that we're looking to provide. But down the road, we will. Uh, and so I think that's an opportunity. I also think that people in the industry want really good, reliable information to share with each other. And so to the extent down the road, we're able to be the repository of validated, good information. So when the Sportico database says, this is the value of a team, you have some degree of confidence that that team would agree. <laughs> um, right. As opposed that, to what we've seen in the past. Yeah, yeah right. Um, you know, that sort of thing. And I, so I think that too provides an opportunity to scale a business uh, down the road. And I know, I think Joe is even on the board of some people who are doing really good work in, in this space but are finding it very difficult to get their data and their information disseminated either because they don't really have the relationships yet or uh, uh, they, they you know, have a slightly different model. Well, to the extent we can, I mentioned earlier, my experience of the value of partnerships. If we can partner with people who are in that situation and say, hey, you've got some great data, you're having difficulty distributing it or doing whatever, let's figure out, can we work together? 
and and I think there will be opportunities to do that. Plus, plus you've got all the Penske media platforms if you were able to take this. Right, into right. right, that's what I was thinking. It's like scalable. I know we want to get into a wrap of questions, but I have to ask you one more thing I'm dying to ask you. And I, I'm going to ask you take off your Sportico CEO hat and put on your Yoda costume. What, with your vast knowledge of this business that goes back a long ways in such interesting spots, what do you think, and I know maybe this could be podcast with Dick Glover part two, but what are going to be the quick, and you got to answer this like in short form, what are going to be the three biggest sports business stories of this decade? Of this decade? Um, one will be, um, uh, I'm trying to come up with the right word, how fans engage with sports because it's that that was changing anyway mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and now who the hell knows what's going to happen <laughs> over the next few years but that's going to be critical how do fans engage with sports including the subset of that is what's the effect on on media and how it's distributed and all of that um I think the second over the next decade, and this is one that is hardly original, is the economic impact of sports gambling. I, I think people, hard as this is to believe, are underestimating the impact of that um, because I think uh, states are really going to be hurting for new revenue sources. I think there is more demand than people realize. And you're seeing it, you know, all the people who think all this day trading was actually sports gamblers who had nothing to gamble on over the last couple of months. So I think that's going to be one. And the third is, I believe, the college sports ecosystem 10 years from today will bear no resemblance to what it is today. Wow. Uh, nice. That, that was good for spur of the moment. Like, I didn't even give you, give you any warning on that question. <laughs> Want to wrap <laughs> us up, Tim? Uh, yeah. So, so Dick, um, just last two questions to, to finish off all of our shows. One is, um, beyond, we asked the folks how you stay smart. We, I, we love to hear from people as to what they're reading, what they're listening. So beyond Sportico and all that's being done in the Sportico family right now, what, what are you looking at day to day or what are you listening to day to day to keep you on top of things? Yeah, I, and, and I'm old, and, and therefore, it's like I'm uh, probably my advice is not of great advice to young people. What, are you going to uh, mention Reader's Digest? Well, <laughs> the, um, I get, so, literally, when I wake up in the morning, there are probably 150 things in my inbox that are to be read that are not work communications. They're newsletters, they're, they're you know, the, the uh, feeds from the various uh, publications. And, and, and if you can imagine, I'm not, and I get through that every day. Uh, a lot of time spent before the kids get up, a fair amount of time spent sometimes after they go to bed. Um, but, and, and then it's really traditional kinds of things you know, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, New York Times, Washington Post, Recode, um, uh, Sports Business Journal, mm -hmm. Front Office Sports, Hashtag Sports, Sports Techie, um, The Information. Axios, don't forget Axios. Axios, oh, for sure. I think, Ax by the way, Axios, I should have mentioned first. Yeah. Both Axios in general, and also what Kendall Baker is doing with their daily uh, feed is, is, is terrific, just terrific. Um, you know, so all of that. So, so that's really my primary source. I have found in the pandemic, um, because I, I'm, I am a big sports fan anyway, and sort of my wallpaper is sports events on TV or whatever. Without that, um, I've actually read some books which uh, I had not read books in quite some time, I'm ashamed to admit. What, what are some of them, Dick? Curious. The, uh, yeah, that I, <laughs> the, the lightest reading was, uh, and I forget the author who wrote about 
the process of the Philadelphia 76ers. Oh yeah, uh, you're on you're on Weitzman. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Good book. That, but I read a great book about Northern Ireland uh, uh, and and the the problems and say nothing is the title of that book. Phenomenal book. I read a thing about a, a, a great drugs and arms dealer internationally. Phenomenal. Who, who used the internet pharmaceuticals on the internet? It's based called Mastermind. That was also an excellent book. I I read the. Uh, the Theranos story was it blood money or whatever. blood money? Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that was good. And then the last one, phenomenal, the Churchill book, um, the the splendid and the vile, uh, and and again, incredibly relevant for today and the meaning of leadership. And uh, uh, it's a terrific book. Nice. All right, last Joe. Yeah, what was that? covered most of the advice. Yeah. Anyone, any little tidbits that you haven't left out? And then obviously the most important thing is where do we send people to sign up for Sportico? Yeah, uh, the, the career advice, I always give one that uh, I, I fear people take literally, but I don't mean it so. And it is when you're starting to go out into the marketplace, you definitely, as I say, I said in the beginning, Focus on something you're passionate about. And if you have to make ends meet in some other unpleasant way for a little while, so be it. That I think in the long term that does you well. But when you're interviewing for jobs and when you're preparing resumes and LinkedIn profiles, I highly encourage you to think about everything you've done, everything you've thought about doing, and, and um, uh, without ever telling a falsehood, really make sure you are uh, um, as comprehensive, let's put it that way, as possible. And, and just be dogged in getting somebody's attention, you know, and, and you'll get a thousand no replies and then another thousand thank you, I'm busy. And then you'll finally get one that will actually lead to uh, uh, your future. Um, so that's sort of the the uh, additional advice uh, I would I would give on on that. And then uh, for Sportico.com, just go to Sportico.com. Um, and and there though the real key is sign up for the newsletters. Yep. We do. Uh, three, at the moment, three newsletters. One is just breaking news. When breaking news happens, a breaking news alert newsletter, which is, is just that. Uh, second, every morning we do a thing called John Wall Street by Sportico, which is one of Joe's uh, uh, mentees or whatever you yeah, call you him. You're going to get a new hat, Dick. That's your goal. Yeah, there you go. Just, we're, we'll clean him up, but Corey <laughs> left like that with with us in in the morning and then in the evening sportico the lead which is essentially the summary of the day's stories and 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 the day's news so i highly encourage they're all free uh especially are there any any events on the calendar between now and yeah. what's the next few months that you want to mention no we're not, not as i okay. said we're, we're gonna wait on that a little right. bit until we feel we can do it the way we really okay. want to do it right. um uh, but do look out for within a few weeks, we will be uh, first announcing Scott and Evan are going to renew their business of sport podcast. And then some right. of our other reporters shortly thereafter, we're going to put together a little podcast network. That's, you know, probably a month away. Nice. And, and the people who uh, have signed up for lots of newsletters like me yes. and Dick mentioned most of the ones that I get, the interesting thing that I, I've seen already in the, late day one that Sportico is doing are looking at stories and not just throwing on a couple more stories because they've been everywhere, but like there was an ESPN story that came out this week about basically the Ivy League privilege in MLB, which I hadn't seen yeah. anywhere. And that yeah. was an immediately shareable story on ESPN.com that will I'm yeah. sure will lead to something that Sportico will be doing down the road much more in depth, which was great. So. Yeah, no, we're, as I say, uh, we look 
to carve out a spot as we want to be the smart, insightful thought leader. And, and in part, one of the reasons for that is Sports Business Journal does a phenomenal job of curating everything that's happened, you know, throughout the day or night. Um, and, and that, you know, it's funny, I said to, to uh, Abe Machter, their, their publisher, we don't really look at them as the competition, that, that we're really looking to do something, I think, a little bit different. And that if anything, you know, we probably should be selling each other together because I think we're very complimentary. Makes sense. Great. Well, this has been great, Tom. I mean, yeah, no, it was wonderful. I just want to make sure Dick's good feels uh, feels like he got his end of the quid pro quo here because um, <laughs> we 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 promised we'd promote Sportico. But so I will st I will end it this way, Dick. We're not going to suggest people listening sign up, we're going to tell people to sign up for Sportico. Um, so this is a direct order for anybody in the Columbia program, because we have a little bit of sway there. But honestly, it's a really a great, first of all, it's a great story. Thank you for sharing your, 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 um, your career insights and experiences. It's amazing. And I will be first in line when you do publish your memoirs, a life in sports business. Uh, true confessions, we're going to call it. We'll host the book for you. Actually, I'm going to call it, and I'm never going to do it, by the way, but it's going to be called Walk and Talk, because that's what I always say to people. And it's what I miss so much about not being in an office, is what I call the management by walking around. Yeah. And all the time I'm saying to people, okay, walk and talk. Let's, you yeah. Know. yeah, I don't know. There's, there's a great right. story. Hey, Tom, there's a great story that our yeah. friend TK Dore put, uh, Gore put out this week that was in the New Yorker specifically about the law. Oh, story. I, saw, I read that, or I saw the tweet and I, I read a little bit of it. Uh, yeah, the value of walking, how such great things result in terms of brain, uh, brain development and ideation and things like that. Couldn't agree yeah. more. So that's actually a really good way to end it, Dick. That's, that's wonderful. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We really awesome. appreciate it. Um, we'll look forward to having you back because maybe if it's, if we need to wait 10 years, we can review your three predictions, but hopefully we'll be able to do it sooner, sooner than that. Uh, if there's anything we can do for you, let us know. But um, when and if you have any conferences or events, uh, we'll definitely be participating and to the extent you need any help with interns or whatever or promotion, you know where to find us. Absolutely. And, and hopefully before too long, I would love to at some point come sit in on a class in, in person. And oh my God. Well, yeah. We'll be doing that at some yeah. point. We don't know yeah. when. It's an open invitation for uh, when you come to New York, if, assuming we do it in, in person. And if it's on Zoom, you can come anytime you want. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. And thanks to our producer, uh, Tom Cerny. Appreciate it, Tom. Joe, another good show. Really enjoyable show for, for, uh, for those of us that are fans of the history of sports media, because uh, Dick is a real one of, one of the great executives in the business. So it's a, a real privilege to have you, Dick. So thank you. Thank you. And we'll see everybody next time on the uh, next episode of The Cusp Show. Thanks again. Thank you.